In John chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 1 to 23, and the message is entitled, God Fills Empty Lives. Have you ever misunderstood something thinking that it was the worst thing that ever happened to you, when in fact it um, turned out the biggest blessing? Such was the case on Easter Sunday. Three days had passed. Many um, had seen their hope crushed, their dreams shattered. Since Jesus had been crucified, buried, and um, no one has seen him yet. It's kind of like the two men on the road to Emmaus that Luke 24 tells us, as Jesus veiled their sight. Um, but they were just lost and crushed. Because, see, if Jesus wouldn't have risen from the dead, then he would have been just another religious man. He would have had disciples and followers, but really they would have died without any hope like anybody else. But out of love and respect, some came to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. Let me read our text for us. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus lay. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have lain him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the door was shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad 
when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. And the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Easter Sunday was characterized by three things in our text here. First, the empty tomb, verse 1 through 10. Second, the empty woman, 11 through 18. And thirdly, the empty disciples in verse 19 through 23. The empty tomb was an absolute essential. This is the key. If that tomb would have had a body, you and I wasted some good sleep this morning. We could have slept in. Notice verse 1 and 2. Mary Magdalene misunderstood the empty tomb. Mary was the first of the tomb, by the way. She came on the first day, Sunday. The church always has met on Sunday, the first day. Book of Acts makes that very clear. Paul writes to the Corinthians, the first day of the week. She came early in the morning while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Uh, Matthew 28, Mark 16, and Luke 24, in the beginning verses, all tell us this. Other women came with Mary also, Salome and the other Mary. Again, the other synoptics tell us very clearly. So you got to put Matthew, Mark, and Luke together and you get a full picture of all that happened. Those differences are not contradictions any more than four witnesses of a crime scene would be contradictory. They give supplementary information so you can put the case together and get a clear picture. Now, as they're going to the tomb, their conversation was, Who's going to roll away that stone? And as they're thinking and conversing about this, though it was a legitimate concern to an extent, it's huge. Some of you have been to Israel. You've been there at Gordon's Calvary, the tomb where the big rock is put over the face of the cave. There's no way you're going to move that with not a couple of women. But what they didn't know, an earthquake had already taken place and the angel had rolled away the stone. Again, Matthew 28, 2, Mark 16, 3, and Luke 24, 2 tells us. Things that will never happen, and yet we worry about them. But at least we worry, right? God said he was going to rise from the dead. Jesus didn't say, now make sure you guys are early in the morning there so you can roll away the stone so I can get out. Mary ran to tell two of the disciples, John tells us here in verse 2. First she came to Peter. Remember, Peter had denied the Lord, and I'm sure in his mind he still had that last meeting when his eyes met the eyes of Jesus, and he denied him for the third time, and the rooster crowed, and he wept out. He went out bitterly. I didn't do it. Just that guilt, that shame. Jesus would speak to him directly very soon. She came to the other disciple. This is John, the one who Jesus loved. The one who was at the cross, the only disciple at the cross. The one who um, saw Jesus from afar off with the women. She came and told them both. Someone 
has carried away the Lord's body. I don't know where they've lain him. And yet Peter and John, hearing this, they have to go see for themselves. They inspected the empty tomb in verse 3 through 8. In verse 3 through 4, the two disciples notice went out to the tomb. And Luke tells us both of them left at the same time. John outruns Peter to the tomb. Either he was faster or he was younger, one of the two. The two men inspected the tomb in verse 5 through 8. And John stooped down and he looked in and he saw the linen clothes lying there. These are the bandages where they wrapped the body together. The word stoop in our text means to bend down and to look forward to get a better view. It's a very picturesque description of what the angels do desiring to look into the things that the God has for the church in 1 Peter 1.12. You see, angels don't know the future. They only see the history of man unfolding one day at a time, and they stoop down to look to see what God is doing in his church, Peter tells us. Same word. And the word that is used for looking in and what he saw is the word that means to see at a glance or a single look, a snapshot. Boom. It registers. Notice John did not go in. Perhaps he thought he didn't want to be ceremonially defiled. You enter in where there's a dead body, you become ceremonially defiled. But Peter, he enters right into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes, lotus in verse 6, lying there also. Peter's usually real impulsive. He just does things. Stepped out and walked on the water. He's always asking questions. We learn a lot from the life of Peter. Or like like him sometimes. And sometimes he's an encouragement to us that we step out a little more. The word for saw means to look closely, critically in order to inspect. Remember, they haven't seen or heard from Jesus. But he said he would rise. Peter was not hesitant because he had not forgotten that last look of Jesus, I'm sure. It wasn't a look of, I think when they locked eyes, it was a a look of compassion because Jesus could see his brokenness of heart. Because try as you may, and you say, I will never do that again. If you are not filled with God's spirit and his word, you will do it again. You and your strength and I can do nothing. You and I must be thoroughly convinced of that. That's why when we fail, we're convicted because we know we didn't have to fall. But we chose to fall. And we know we have a gracious God and we go to him. But it convicts us. It humbles us. He saw the face cloth there that had been around the head of Jesus separate from the linen cloth by itself. Unusual. Luke verifies this in Luke 24, 12. And the phrase folded together means undisturbed as if the body was still there. So this was a true miracle because if you remove the body, the bandages just flop. 
It's still intact. The conclusion being that no one had stolen the body. No one could leave the wrappings as such if that was the case. They'd have to undo them all. So the evidence, like a good detective, demonstrates and concludes no one stole it. There's no way. In verse 8, John also entered the tomb now. This time John saw and believed. The word saw there is different from the one in verse 5 and 6. It means to know, to be aware, to be sure he had risen. Everybody's different. You were somewhere and somebody preached the gospel to you or told you about Jesus. And you didn't believe, ah, you know, I don't know the Bible, whatever. And all of a sudden, at a set time, at a set point, boom, you believe. You believe that Jesus was God. You believe that he died for your sins. You believe that you would be judged one day. By the grace of God, the illuminating, convicted work of the Spirit of God. Not because you're so smart. This is what happened to John. The result was that he believed the error's tense, indicating a decisive act, not a process. And that's how it happens. You're listening, you're being ministered unto. But all of a sudden, in one thousand of a second, boom, everything becomes real. You know that you know. And you can't stay the same. You've got to make a decision for the first time. Notice in verse 9 through 11, John comments on the empty tomb. The two disciples did not know the scriptures that Jesus must rise again from the dead. The understanding of spiritual truths is not a matter of intellectual capacity, as I said earlier, but a matter of revelation and faith. Both did not perceive nor understand at this point the full meaning of the scriptures, and in the context it refers to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You say, how can that be? Well, there's no contradiction that John saw and believed in verse 9. One can believe God's word without understanding what God promised or declares. That's faith. I believe God's word because it's God's word is infallible. It's an errand. It's his revelation. I don't have to understand it completely. What he says is absolute truth. When it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's not trying to persuade me. He's telling me what he did. My responsibility is, am I going to believe it or reject it? And yet there's so much evidence that Jesus does give us through the scriptures, but not at all times. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Those that come to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith has to lead me back to the biblical revelation. That's how I know my faith is biblical. I believe what God said. Not apart from it, not in contradiction, not in addition, but only what God says. And doesn't mean I have to understand it completely to its full end. In fact, I don't have to understand it at all. I just have to make a decision, is this God speaking inherently, infallibly, or is this just a book like any other? Wow. The two disciples went home, verse 10. 
The word home is in the plural, each to its home. And John, of course, went home where Mary would be because Jesus handed her over to John at the cross. You see, Easter Sunday was characterized by an empty tomb, which was misunderstood. Secondly, the empty woman is presented to us, verse 11 through 18. In 11 through 13, Mary was consumed with her sorrow. If you're human, then you have known sorrow. All of us will know sorrow, some of us more than others. Mary stands in contrast to the two disciples that went home by the word but. (laughs) Mary stood outside the tomb weeping and sobbing as she stooped and looked in. It was the disciples that abandoned Jesus except for John at the cross. All the women were at the cross. It was the women who were first at the cross. Salome, Mary, the other Mary. Mary sees two angels in verse 12. They were in white. The examination of the other Gospels will show that angels were seen at different times and in different manners throughout the visitations to the tomb. So there's no contradiction. The one that rolled away the stone had the nerve to sit on the stone and wait for them. And we'll see some other ones as we move along. One sat here now at the head inside the tomb and the other at the foot of the, where the body laid. A beautiful fulfillment of the Old Testament. You remember the Ark of the Covenant. There was a mercy seat on top of it with a little crown of gold all the way around. On one end was a cherub, the other one another cherub with their wings crossed looking down the center. That was the place where the high priest would meet God once a year and the glory, the Shekinah glory would be manifested. What do you have here? You have the two angels. What do you see in between them? The Shekinah glory. He's risen from the dead. If there was a body there, it would have been a bummer. (laughs) There's no body. Thank God for that. Mary is mildly rebuked by the angels in verse 13. They addressed her with respect, woman. They asked her, why are you weeping? Luke says that they said, why do you seek the living among the dead in Luke 24, 5? She tells the angels they, most likely the Jews, had taken away her Lord and she didn't know where they had laid him. Later on, the chief priest would bribe the soldiers at the tomb and say that they were to say that the disciples had stolen the body while they were sleeping. And if Pilate got wind of it, they would intercede for them. Well, that would be a lie, but they did take the money because they would be put to death anyway. But isn't it interesting that no matter how dangerous the chance might be, if we're greedy... The money will always win out. And it really doesn't have to be much. People kill people for life insurance for $5,000. People will take a solicitation for a hit for $300. Amazing. Verse 14 and 15, Mary was blinded by her sorrow. 
She turned around not impressed nor excited about the angels because when you're looking for Jesus, angels are no big deal. Jesus created them. They're messengers for the earth of salvation. She turned and saw Jesus standing there and she didn't know that it was he. Verse 14. And Mary said, or Jesus said to Mary, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She was so consumed in her sorrow, she supposed Jesus was the gardener. Now, Jesus veiled the eyes of those in the road to Emmaus. And here again, we don't know why. But he did it for a set time. She began to declare to him that if he had carried Jesus away, tell her where he had laid him, that she would take him away. Five times she uses the personal pronoun him in, in this verse. A sign of her love for her Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, fervent love has no limitations. She was willing to carry this dead body which would have been an impossibility. But you know when you love someone, it doesn't matter what has to be done or how impossible it may seem. You step up the bat with the greatest motive, love. That's the greatest motive. In verse 16 through 18, Mary then was comforted in her sorrow. Jesus calls out her, her name, Mary. And she addresses him, Rabboni, which John interprets for us, teacher, verse 16. Mark tells us Jesus appeared first to Mary again in Mark 16, 19, as confirmation. And she was possessed with seven demons. Now, the Catholic Church always presents her as a prostitute, absolutely unscriptural. That's another one. Mary had been possessed. You can imagine her appreciation and love for the Lord being tormented and not being able to live her own life and being possessed by these demons. And then he set her free completely. Is it any wonder that she was first at the tomb? Jesus instructs Mary next in verse 17. She did not want to lose him again, so she clung to him by the feet in a worshipful manner. Matthew 28 tells us she clung to him. And Jesus tells her not to cling to him, for he had not ascended to his father yet. The reason was not that he could not be touched after the resurrection, for he told Thomas, Here's my hands, here's my side. Touch me. Jesus tells her to go tell his brethren, the disciples, that he was ascending to his father and her father, to his God and her God. The new relationship had begun in effect. He was their brother and God was their father. Never did Jesus ever say to any of his disciples or any of the women, our father, meaning them and he. He always said, my father, your father. My God, your God. 
but never in a corporate setting, our. Because he's distinct, he's God himself. The ascension of Jesus seems to have taken place between this account and when Jesus appeared to the ten in the upper room. Now I'm not talking about the ascension 40 days after. Because remember, 1 Peter 3, 1, 19-21 says that he first descended to the lowest parts. Colossians 2.14 says he, he set captives free, made a public display of them, and took them to heaven. Okay? So Mary was obedient to her commission here in verse 18. She told the disciples two things. That she had seen the Lord, and that she was giving them the words that Jesus told her to give them. She was the mere messenger. You and I are mere messengers. We should never take the responsibility of ministering the gospel to others as if it is our own authority or our own message or that we have to convince people we communicate what has been given to us with prayer that they would open their heart to God. But it's a personal decision people make. She was only responsible for the message. She's a herald. Notice she departed from the tomb with fear and great joy to the disciples. Matthew 28 tells us this particularly. And she saw that her words were not believed. In fact, they were thought to be kind of a tale in Luke 24:11. The dirty dozen did not believe the message. At this point, 11, Judas has hung himself. But they did not believe. The women were the last at the cross. The women were the first at the tomb. Easter Sunday was characterized by an empty woman. She was overwhelmed with sorrow, but comforted. Because Jesus rose from the dead. Notice thirdly, you have the empty disciples of verse 19 through 23. In 19 and 20, the circumstances were not peaceful. Verse 19. The account was in the same day, Sunday, but in the evening. The door was shut. The disciples were assembled due to their fear of the Jews. Because at this point, the Jews are going crazy. In fact, they're the ones that secured the guard, the Roman guard for the uh, tomb, they believed more about the resurrection than the disciples did. The Lord Jesus came and he stood right in the middle of them. The word of Jesus was, peace be with you. Nifty little particulars about the new heavenly body, the glorified body. Jesus zipped on up to Galilee and down to Jerusalem in an instant. He came into a room without using the door. So I'm looking for this new model. Uh, when you're young, you're not looking for anything because you think you're good enough. You're in shape. You can't even think of ever being 30, let alone needing glasses, let alone losing some hair. It's just not in the program. But time and gravity takes care of us. But notice the circumstances were altered in verse 20. Jesus showed them his hands in the side. My side. Here are my hands. 
They represented the payment for the sins of the world, the love of God for the world, that which provides peace with God for justification in Romans 5.1. You see, if we don't know Jesus Christ, then we are enemies of God. The wrath of God is upon us. And Jesus died to make the provisions for our reconciliation that we no longer be at war with God, that we no longer are under the wrath of God. But as we call upon Him, we can be saved and justified. Jesus turned their fear into gladness, notice. Perfect love cast out all fear, 1 John 4.18. doesn't mean that we don't have fear. It means that when there's fearful situations, we turn to the Lord and His Word and we remember what He says about what He can do for us, in us and through us. We live in a real world as Christians, but we live through the power of God and His Word. And there's warfare. There's difficulties. There's the old sin nature I still have. There's the new sin nature I have. The new nature, the sin nature, they clash. But I can be more than a conqueror if I walk in the Spirit, deny my flesh, and keep my eyes on the Lord as I seek Him for the circumstances, situations of life. The power of death did not hold Jesus, He's alive. Then notice the disciples were commissioned. By Jesus in verse 21. Jesus proclaimed the peace that was to accompany them in their commission. The peace was this. Not the peace of the world. But the one he had told them about and promised them in John 14, 27. Not as the world gives, but as I give. And the world you should have two religions. Be a good cheer, I have overcome the world. This peace would surpass all understanding, Philippians 4, 6-7 says. But before we can have the peace of God for the situations of life, we have to make peace with God. We have to repent and be justified. So peace with God means my repentance, recognizing I'm a sinner and that he died for my sin, rose from the dead. The peace of God is once I'm a Christian for the situation, circumstance of life, to hold me. Jesus was sending them as the Father has sent him. That's why he spent three and a half years with them. He kept telling them this, but they didn't hear. They had a different view. They were, they were looking for a conquering Messiah to knock off Rome and set up the kingdom. The word sent with a T refers to Jesus and indicates delegated authority with an enduring aspect. The word send with a D for the disciples refers to them indicating one dispatch. Under authority, in the present tense, continually active. Once you're born again, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. You are a student. You are an ambassador for Christ. Knowing what God has done for you, what he's done for me, knowing what he has saved me from and what he has saved me to, Knowing all that he forgave me of every one of my sins and understanding the peace of God and the joy of God and the hope in God 
It should be a natural response of mine to want to let everybody understand and hear this. Because I know what it is to be lost. I know what it is to be under the wrath of God. I know what it is to live without hope. And so it should be the desire of the new nature automatically to want to pull people out of the fire. If you love them, you have compassion, you've been there. And so the disciples were equipped to preach the word of God. Whoever God calls, he enables. Look at verse 22 and 23. Jesus breathed on them the Holy Spirit. The fact was that at the same time, the commission took place. At the same time. And by the way, the act was a command, not a suggestion. The act reminds us of the account of man's creation by God when he breathed into the nostrils of man and made him a living soul in Genesis 2, 7. Without God's spirit in you, you're dead. In fact, if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are dead in trespasses and sins. Now, you may be in the fittest shape of your life. A lot of healthy people in hell. Ripped. But um, they're not enjoying that ribness. Trust me. It's when God breathes into us his life that we see life for the first time. And we can live life the way we're supposed to. Never with perfection or unto perfection. That's not what the Bible teaches. But you surely live, live a lot different than you did before because now he enables you. He gives you his spirit. He gives you his word. He gives you his mind. The disciples were already believers or they couldn't have come this far. Jesus said he had chosen the twelve. One of them was a devil in John six seventy, And he had told the eleven that they were complete in him and completely clean. John thirteen ten. You are cleansed by the word that has spoken unto you. Jesus said they were his disciples. Through the new birth, he told Nicodemus, you must be born again or you'll never enter the kingdom of God. That is not a suggestion. That is not just for Nicodemus. It's for every person who ever has any hope of seeing heaven. The experience, notice, was not merely symbolic nor should it be explained in such a way. A literal thing happened here. The event was a real reception of the Holy Spirit into their lives at this point. There is no contradiction with the promise that Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, would come upon them. They should be witnessed in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. They received the Spirit here, the baptism, as the birth of the church in its official form at the day of Pentecost. The authority of their preaching was on what Jesus accomplished. Notice that. So he enables them, and he gives them the message. That's, that's the definition of a herald. A herald was someone that the state or the government hired to make proclamations. And when they did that, uh, the message was not theirs. It was given to them. The authority was not theirs. It was vested to them. And they were only responsible for one thing, to proclaim the message. They were not responsible to persuade, to have people decide, just to... Proclaim the message. It is not your responsibility or mine to try to convince or to convert or to whatever. Your responsibility and mine is to give the message to this lost world. 
The Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit saves. No one else. The text is not teaching the disciples in themselves had the personal power and authority to forgive sins on some people. And those that they didn't, they didn't. It wasn't a personal thing. They had no power or ability. If you did, can you imagine being in the state we're in? Then the people I like, I forgive. The people I don't, I tell them to go to hell. Because that's what we do. In fact, as Christians, we kind of don't like some people going to be in heaven with us, right? Sometimes. But it won't matter when you're up there. It's not going to make a difference. Right now, you're going to say, well, but they think the same thing about you. So, yeah. Now, the Catholic Church uses this text for the authority of the priest to forgive your sins. It's completely out of context. There's no such authority for any man. Two other times this phrase is used. Some translations, the old King James has binding and loosening. And the first one is in the context. Um, The words speak allowing and disallowing. In the first place, Peter was given the keys of the kingdom, if you remember, in Matthew 16, 19, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he opened up the day of Pentecost. The second regards church discipline in Matthew 18, 18. Binding or loosing, allowing, disallowing, retaining, remitting. Different English words, but the same Greek word. The passage in our text here is talking about the efficaciousness, the sufficiency of the atonement, for all the sins of mankind by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and the resurrection. The good news is to be proclaimed that he did die and he did rise from the dead. That the recipients adhering it have to make a decision whether that is true and they believe it or that they don't believe it because they don't believe it's true. And based on that response, if someone says, I believe that Jesus is the one who died for my sins and rose from the dead, like the Ethiopian eunuch, then I have the authority after I take you through a sinner's prayer to say to you, your sins are cast as far as east as the west. All your sins, everything you've ever done, has been forgiven, blotted out, and you will never have to give an account for those sins. I have that authority because I understand the gospel you just did. But if you reject or want to become sort of like a moderate and different, well, I, you know, I just... You know, no choice is a choice in itself. You've chosen not to choose. You're for God or against Him. There is no neutral point. And if you reject it, whether you're real cordial, whether you're real whatever, then I have the authority to tell you, you are still in your sins. They're still retained, and one day God will judge you for your sins. And you will not have a second opportunity to be saved. Now, when I say that, I should never say that with joy or with some sort of satisfaction with a broken heart. And continue to pray for that person. Because they are headed to hell. So you have that authority and so do I. But I must be very clear. That there's only one way. 
John 14, 6. There's only one name, Acts 4, 12, Jesus Christ. There's only one mediator, 1 Timothy 2, 5, Christ Jesus. No one can get to heaven apart from Jesus Christ. He's the only one who has died and risen from the dead. Allah cannot get you in. Krishna cannot get you in. Peter cannot get you in. The Pope cannot get you in. You certainly cannot get you in. Nobody. Now we live in a world, ladies and gentlemen, that is intolerable to what I'm saying. And very soon in America, if it continues the way it's going, you'll have to visit me in jail. But are you a disciple of Jesus Christ or not? Has he changed your life or not? Easter Sunday was characterized by the empty disciples who were fearful until their eyes were on Jesus and commissioned to preach the gospel. You see, God has saved you not just to come to church, but to be the church. Not just to sit in a chair or a pew, but to minister the gospel to your family, your friends, where you work, wherever it is. Nothing compulsive, and I certainly don't suggest that you be preaching while you're working. You should be the best worker. You should give your employer the best eight hours of anybody in that place. Witness them on your break, before work, after work. Be an example. Now, emptiness can only be filled by Jesus then. Like Mary, who was filled with sorrow over the empty tomb, Many are um, consumed with sorrow for many disappointing things in life. Maybe um, a loss of some goal in life. Never realized. A career. Schooling. Maybe you're about to marry and the person changed their heart and mind about you. Crushing things. Maybe the loss of a loved one, a father, a mother, a child, a spouse. The world is filled with tragedies and sadness. We live in a fallen world. Like Mary and the disciples, if you do not know the scriptures, then you will just go back home. And even though you may have hope in Christ, you really are not walking within your hope. You just come in and then you go out. Some do not know the scriptures because they haven't been born again. So, of course, they they can't understand the scriptures. But others who are Christians, though they have the potential, they don't because they don't study, they don't grow, they don't mature. They don't reckon themselves dead and mature in Christ, so they live as carnal people, as people who haven't been born again. They still live for themselves. And like Mary, many are blinded by their sorrows without hope in Christ, living a life of hopelessness and defeat. Now, when it first starts off, whatever the scenario you fill in the blank, it's hard, it's difficult, but as you keep going day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, it gets heavy and old. Regretting their lives and living with resentment, anger, and bitterness. Resorting to a life of drugs, whether they be legal through prescription or illegal. It's hard to tell today anything. 
or a life of alcohol or promiscuity sexually ending up with therapy and psychology very costly and it just ruins your health all the way around because the only way you can ever have the peace of God is when you know your sin has been atoned for and forgiven because no one can undo or redo anything they have committed we don't need to understand we need to repent and be forgiven for our sins what can wash away my sin nothing but the blood of Jesus the precious blood Peter says no amount of works no amount of money no amount of facade of expensive clothes, expensive cars, living in the expensive neighborhood that doesn't do anything. It's a facade. You're still in your sin. Like Mary, if you will respond to the words of Jesus, you can be comforted for your sorrow and cleansed from your sin. He reveals himself as the risen one from the dead, able to give you hope in life. Life here is very temporal. Just yesterday I was 18. It's gone so fast. He wants you to be forgiven for all your sins. He wants to give you the peace with God and then the ability to have the peace of God for your journey through life. And to be able to reach to others and comfort them through the gospel, give them true hope. Like the disciples, fear gripped them tremendously. It'll grip our lives too. If we get our eyes out, Jesus Christians. Now, the non-believer, much more because you're trying to arrange and control and, and try to work through it. But as Christians, if we um, don't resort to the Lord, if we don't resort to the Word, if we don't resort to prayer, if we don't repent of our sins either, then we're out of fellowship with God and we don't have the peace that surpasses all understanding of Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 through 7. So we forfeit something that's really ours available, but we try to handle it our own way. The conditions may never change, but my awareness of the Word of God and the promise of Jesus and my humbling myself and submitting myself and dying to self, then my joy will be focused upon the Lord in Philippians 4, 4. Not the circumstance, not the situation. The only way is to be filled with the Spirit of God and by the Word of God. Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 3.16. No other way. And like the disciples, Jesus commissions you all to preach the gospel. Not just me, the teacher. All of us. We have different callings, different gifts, but we're all the same. I'm just like you. I am one among you and from you. I'm only a little higher so you can see me. Not because I'm better than you. So all of us 
should have the heart to communicate to God, especially in the day that we're living in our nation and the world. Hopelessness. For the first time, this hopelessness is starting to bring real fear to the American public. Things are changing so radically. Once again, the hope is Jesus Christ, no one else. The true story of mutiny on the bounty was often retold. One part deserves retelling was the transformation wrought by one book. Nine mutineers, six native men, and 12 native Tahitian women. They put ashore on Pitcairn, Pitcairn Island in 1790. One sailor soon began to distill alcohol. Well, you know what's going to happen. A little colony was plunged into debauchery and vice. Ten years later, only one white man survives, surrounded by native women and half-breed children. In an old chest from the bounty, the sailor one day found a Bible. He began to read it and to teach it to the others. The result was that his own life and ultimately the lives of all those in the colony were changed. Discovered in 1808 by the USS Topaz, Pitcairn Island had become a prosperous community with no jail, no whiskey, no crime, no laziness. One book, the Bible. Now, do you put the Bible on the same level as your arithmetic book? Your history book? You're making a great mistake. It is God's word. And when people hear it, if they open their heart, it will transform them. No jail, no whiskey, no crime, no laziness. It doesn't say the capacity was not there. All of us have the same capacity, even as Christians. But what is it that restrains us now? Laws? No. It's the Spirit of God in us. Understand one, one day I'm going to give an account to God for my life. I'm not going to fizzle out. I'm going to stand before God. Wow. Easter Sunday was characterized by emptiness that can only be filled by Him. I don't know where you're at this morning, but God does. That's the important thing. If you're thinking, well, my situation is different, it isn't. My situation is impossible to you, not to God. You don't know what I've done. God does. It doesn't matter. Jesus forgave Paul the apostle. Are you ready for Paul? He persecuted Christians. He incarcerated them. He caused them to blaspheme. He killed them. And God called him to repentance. He repented and he forgave him. And used him as his instrument 
a great instrument in the New Testament. That's the type of God we serve. Easter Sunday was characterized by these three things. The empty tomb, which was misunderstood, the empty women, who was overwhelmed with sorrow, particularly Mary, but comforted. And the empty disciples, who were fearful until their eyes were on Jesus and commissioned to preach the gospel. He asks you today, who are you seeking? Why are you weeping? I'm alive. I can change your life. I can take care of your sorrow. Father, we worship you. We thank you for your mercy, for your grace. Lord, we thank you for every person that you bring every time. We worship you. We thank you for the privilege of preaching your word and our confidence in you, Lord, that you, you can change lives. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins, to be faced with your sin, your own mortality, your own accountability to God one day. While you're living, you have the choice to accept Christ, to forgive you of your sins, believing that he died for them, or that you will be sufficient on the day of judgment. That's the choice. Now, you're here today. I don't know if it's the last time you will hear the gospel. I don't even know if this is the first time you've heard the gospel. But anytime anyone hears the gospel... It's always presumptuousness and foolishness to think they're going to hear it again. The two thieves on the cross didn't. One accepted, the other rejected. One was a Jesus in paradise that very day, the other one was separated from God for all eternity. Both equally distant, equally hearing the same message. Both equally made a decision that determined their eternity. Jesus did not determine it. They determined their eternity as to their conclusion about Jesus. You're in the same position. No different. If you see yourself as a sinner in need of Christ, you want to accept him as your Lord and Savior, balcony floor over the internet, and God says you have to repent, agree that you're a sinner, and ask him to forgive you. If this is what you want to do, this is your prayer to him, not to us. And he's going to save you right now and give you eternal life. This is your prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart, Lord. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.